I just wanted to let people know that this is where this music that you say you love, it comes from this mm -hmm. condition. The blues, gospel, soul, all of that, that turned into rock and roll, that turned into metal, that turned into funk, hip hop. I want people to know that it's not all rosy. You can't, don't just pick and choose. If you love this music, this stuff comes from some hardcore-ish. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. So good evening, John. How are hey, you? Hey, Kiva. Well, welcome everyone to the Race to Social Justice podcast. I'm Kiva White. As you can see, the black guy I've been this way for a very long time. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And I'm going to have my co-host introduce himself. I'm John Kepner. I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share a common interest in the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for knowledge. Uh, something that we thirst for and what uh, Kiva calls the K factor. You know, as you know, the goal of our podcast is really to promote racial and social equity and justice through, you know, honest, authentic, and even sometimes they're going to be difficult conversations. And, and so we have dubbed these conversations or these dialogues as courageous conversations. You know, John and I have found over the years that our discussion with each other have has deepened uh, with respect to understanding um, of racism and our personal responsibilities in that regard and our own personal journeys. Of, of dealing with racism in this country. And that has really led us to invite other guests to share their honest experiences and their learning um, uh, around racism and social injustice and how they handle them. We hope these conversations will really help our listeners and even our guests and their own personal journey um, towards uh, racial justice in this country. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, pleased uh, to be a part of this project. And so John, who do we have as, as our guest for this segment? So we are, I am really thrilled that uh, uh, Shah, a.k.a. Goldie Pipes from Houston, Texas, and I'm not going to hold it against you that the Astros are beating my Red Sox right now pretty handily, <laughs> but uh, I was there on Monday night when we, uh, at Fenway Park, uh, when we beat you guys. Uh, but anyway, uh, the way this uh, idea came about is that um, our producer for these podcasts uh, David Kepner, my son, Hogue, as he's known, um, uh, had produced some music for uh, Shah and uh, had a podcast with Shah. And I listened to it and I was really intrigued by what he had to say about uh, the origin of his music and the origin of black music. And um, he seemed to be really candid in his remarks. And it just seemed to be a good fit also because uh, Kiva uh, in his early years in college and after college was a professional uh, disc jockey. So mm -hmm. I figured he knows something about music a lot more than I do. And uh, it would be a good match for, for all of us uh, for those reasons. So welcome, uh, Shah. And um, we're going to get right at it. Unless you want to say a couple of words to begin with, I'll start the yeah. interview. Okay. No, thanks for having me. I'm uh, thanks for looking forward to it. Thanks yeah, before we that. jump in, so John, you mentioned about my DJ, my DJ years. Shy, I just want to tell you, and that song about that bread. Yeah, I heard the, I heard that little, I heard that little Al Green riff just a little bit, real slow. Y'all slowed it up, real, real slow, 
and and the background there, the drums and the bass line, powerful, powerful stuff, man. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to more of your music and learning about how you incorporate music into um, this thing that uh, we call social justice. So, John, uh, let's go ahead and proceed. Uh, well, so the thing that impressed me when I heard the Hugs uh, podcast with uh, with Shaw was that Shaw kind of lives music. It's 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 part of his being, and um, so we're going to break here and uh, give a little intro of what his music is about in the words of of Hogue, uh, just at the beginning of his podcast. And so let's listen to that. Welcome to the Dream Studios podcast. I'm your host, Hogue, the recording and mixing engineer here at the Dream Recording Studio in South Austin, Texas. My guest this week is Shah Alheem, a.k.a. Goldie Pipes. I met Shah a long, long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, when my band Full Service was playing in Houston. Shah and Full Service shared the stage plenty of times. And Shah is one of those guys who just embodies music. There's no separation between Shah and music. He is music. But uh, but wait, let's start let's start calling him Goldie Pipes now. Because we're talking about the music, because that's what he goes by. And it was under that name that Shah came in in late 2019, I think, to record his album The Chocolate Quarters. Not all the songs were mixed and recorded here at The Dream, but several were. And this album is all over the place in, in all the best ways. I said that Goldie Pipes embodies music, that he is music. And that's evident when you consider the scope of the flavors on the Chocolate Quarters album. There are acapella tracks with full instrumental beatbox style arrangements. There's some old porch blues there's some spoken word stuff. There's classic funk, modern funk, hip-hop, soul, gospel. Over the years, Goldie Pipes has dipped into all these styles. I've seen him, but I'm not sure he's ever just said, F*** it, and dumped all of them onto the same album. And I think it was a good move. Uh, he can walk you through his thought process on that much better than I can. But one of the things I found most fascinating about recording Goldie Pipes was the way he conducted his band. He is a true musical director, both in terms of the broad strokes and the specifics. Shaw, a.k.a. Goldie Pipes, thanks for being on the Dream Studios podcast. Please say hello to your friend, Hogue. Hello, my friend, Hogue. <laughs> well done. You're doing great so far. <laughs> Let's dive right in, because I know you're... Okay, we're back. Now, with that base for our discussion, uh, let's start, Shaw, uh, way back when you were a little boy growing okay. up being raised by your grandparents, and the influence of music at a very early age. Where does that come from? Well, um, it's like you said, basically, my story is, uh, is pretty interesting as far as just my life. And often I, I, I tend to forget a lot of the details because you lived it. And then when, uh, until I start telling people about it, then I was like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Um, but I was one of those uh, children that was born to teenage parents. Um, and of course they didn't have the means to support themselves, so they couldn't support me. So I ended up being raised by my father's parents. Um, and being in that house, my grandmother uh, was a singer. I called, I called him mama and papa growing up. Um, and eventually I got too cool to say papa, so I called him pop. So I, I referred to them in this interview as mama and pop. But mama was a singer. Um, and on, from her family, they were all singers. So I grew up hearing her sing. She's a very religious woman. 
So she basically, I was at church with her all the time and I joined the choir at church. Um, her brother was our pastor when, from about the time I was 12 until I was grown and went on my own journey. And he's a great singer. So uh, I was just around gospel music and, you know, that, you know, deep Southern gospel music my whole life. Um, so that was one. And then she also loved like Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie is her favorite artist outside of the church. Uh, so, you know, I grew up listening to her stuff. And then my grandfather, he's from northern Louisiana, a little town called Belcher. And so he grew up listening. He's really just he was a cowboy. So he grew up listening to country music and blues and James Brown. Like he loved James Brown. He loved Bobby Blue Bland, ZZ Hill. So I grew up listening to that. Um, and my uncle, my father's oldest brother, he was more into into funk music. You know, he was into the funkadelics and he actually is the one that introduced me to Jimi Hendrix, though. So he, he liked a little bit of everything. He liked metal and he liked funk and, uh, you know, old school R&B. So all of this, you know, and then, uh, of course, growing up in the 80s, hip hop started becoming a thing, you know, sort of run DMCs and, you know, that whole era of music. Uh, I was just it was always around me, like everywhere I went um, in my neighborhood. You have the guys with the with the systems, you know, boom, 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 and they're riding down the street banging the newest rap song. And so, you know, I could hear that. My big cousins, they would listen to NWA and Public Enemy. And so, uh, which I know Hogue and uh, Bones, so I love Public Enemy. Uh, so, you know, I, it was just all different kinds of music, you know, going on at the same time. And it, it just, you know, it's like it's like learning a language. You know, you don't you don't come out of the womb saying, hey, I want to talk this particular language. It's if the language is around you, you end up speaking that language. So music was one of those languages for me. Wow. Wow, that's, what was it that's like? Really, uh, where where did you say you you grew up? Was this in Louisiana or? I grew up in Houston, so. Um, oh, Houston. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my entire family is from Louisiana. Um, so my father's parents, uh, their ancestry is well. My father's father, they're Mississippi to Louisiana. My mother, my father's mother, Louisiana to, to Texas. And my mother's side is all from Louisiana, and then everybody just happened to migrate to Texas. At the, around the same time, uh, from different parts of Louisiana, and I was born in Texas. So, yeah. So, wow. Louisiana. Okay. Most of my family is in Louisiana and Mississippi, right? In wow. Texas, of course. Wow. So, so what was it like growing up in the South, yeah. the young black? Yeah. Growing up in the South, when did you first uh, encounter racism? Again, it's like language. <laughs> you know, it's like languages. It's like uh, if it's just natural around you, you don't really know what it is. Um, so I'm going to say like this. First of all, growing up in the South was great uh, for me. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of space. I grew up on four lots. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of space to run around and play. Um, that Southern hospitality thing is not a myth. It's you know what I mean? Um so just really loving people. My neighborhood was really like a legit black community with black owned businesses. We had festivals and parades. It's very small, but very family oriented, community oriented. Uh, I'll speak on that a little more later uh, about when that changed. But um, it was great, man. Like I said, the, the music, the food, um, the church, growing up in the church, the Southern church was just, it was fun. It was like real fiery. You know what I mean? Um, but as far as experiencing racism, it happens and you don't even know it when you're born into it. Like, so I can't say what my first experience was. But it's like, say 
you come from the north, right? You come in from Philadelphia and you've been there your whole life and then you show up in Texas and all of a sudden this incident happens, boom, you, 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 you know it. But if you're born into that environment, so I'll say when I think back on it, I didn't know it was racism then, but me as a grown man looking back on the situation, um, grew up, where I grew up, it was a very small neighborhood and they bust us into the school district. That's, people don't know. They think all this busting stuff just was in the 60s and, and it stopped after that. And it was just civil rights and it was great after that. But that's not that's not the facts. I was born in 1977. I went to school in the 80s and the 90s, of course. So mm-hmm. in my little bitty neighborhood, every two streets and, I, and if y'all don't believe me, you can fact check me. Every two streets went to a different elementary school. Wow. Every two streets. So in my community, there were people that did not know each other until we got to middle school. Mm. Uh, which is crazy, unless we went to the same church. So I had some people I knew because we went to church together, but we didn't grow up in, in that environment together like that because they lived three streets over. So we didn't go to mm. the same elementary school. Now, everybody else, we passed by elementary schools to get to ours. You know, I went to school an hour away from my house, and that was wow. literally an elementary school 10 minutes from my house. Mm. And every neighborhood I passed by, they got an elementary in their neighborhood and they go to that elementary, sometimes too, depending on how many people are there. We got bust all over Cypher District in Houston, which is a huge district. And so when I look back on it, that that's probably my earliest memory of racism. Being bust to these schools where these people that were predominantly white and suburban didn't want us there because we come from the hood, you know what I mean? This black community or whatever. Um, I didn't know it then, it was just life. But when I look back on it now, I think that really messed up that was one of the things that messed up the, my community and, and broke up that community aspect because we had a school in our neighborhood and they shut it down and start busting us to all these other schools. You know, uh, I went to seven schools from one address, man. I went wow. to two elementaries, three middle schools, two high schools. Every time they build a new school, they would zone my neighborhood to it. Wow. I went to seven schools from one house. Wow. wow. I, 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 I would only imagine how how that could impact a young person in terms of learning and education because now you have to be introduced to new teachers a new classroom environment you know new learning protocols and and I'm so I'm so glad you shared you know you shared the the statement that we you know we thought that a lot of stuff got better with the civil rights movement and you know a lot of hidden histories and and you sharing your story about that today is helping us understand that you know, we have to have these conversations so that we, one, uncover the hidden histories of this country around racism and segregation. Because that sounds like a social, to me, that sounds like a socially segregated process. Absolutely. Here you, here you had the opportunity to socialize with kids in your neighborhood and get to know them and create bonds and attachments and, and the system. And so we always talk about how systems can oppress society and certain groups and the system, the education system back then for you, um, and it was not by choice. When I when I when I was bus, uh, you know, when I was bus to a high school out of my neighborhood, it was by choice. My mother decided to send me to a different school. It wasn't for. It seems like you you were forced, and and you had no choice. You had to go Absolutely. to school. So I wanted that. So I wanted to ask you about um, this: the concept of racial trauma. Uh, and then I have a follow-up question about your professional career 
and how have you seen racism? But on the heel of this, so in terms of racial trauma, can you can you think about an incident that you had that was race driven that still creates this kind of like like kind of like balling of your stomach? You feel a knot in your stomach when you when you think about it or you see something that reminds you of that situation. What was the incident and how has it affected you as you sit here today? Too many to name. Uh, yeah. And again, again, when you grew up in the South, a lot of those incidents go unnoticed um, when you're in it. Because again, it's just everyday life. Um, certain conversations. Um, my main thing was the system. Um, and I'm gonna be honest with you, Kiva and John. Um, I, I can't really just point to singular incidents that really affected me personally because I, I was just so used to living my life. I was just one of those kids and I'm, I'm still that type of adult. Uh, I was too busy living my life. I, you know, I was playing sports and I just had a lot of friends from all different communities. I wasn't raised in a house to really look at racism like that. Like my grandmother, mama, she didn't even allow me to say, if I had a friend that was white, um, she wouldn't allow me to say my white friend. You know what I'm saying? Like if I said, oh yeah, my white friend, such and such and such, and she'll stop me and say, why, why you gotta call him white? Why, why is he mm. not just your friend? Um, and that's how she was all the time. And my grandfather, he grew up in a super, super segregated country town in Louisiana. And he never spoke bad about any race. He never, like, it just wasn't in my house. You know what I mean? Um, it was my uncle that, that I was telling you earlier, the one that was into Hendrix and all that. He is the one that started really telling me, because he grew up in the 60s. He came mm. up in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, so he was the one that would always kind of hit me to the different things that was going on. And also my barber, Levi, in the neighborhood, he, he was also one of those you know, right on Soul Brothers. So right. when I go to the barbershop, I would like they say, sit at the feet of the elders. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and just ask questions and really just soak in the information when a lot of my friends, they ain't trying to hear. Y'all, oh, I don't want to hear that. I wasn't that kid. I would love to sit around them and just, and they would just yeah. pour into me. Um, and so my incidents, I was just better equipped up here to deal with all the stuff. And people just liked me. You know, I would I smiled and I could sing and I was fast and you know so it was like yeah. I kind of was I was the good one I guess you can say that so I didn't really get a lot of problems. What I saw though was how my friends were treated, uh, okay, and, and how it affected them. Um, right. You know what I mean? So that's really when I started noticing more things. And I want to say, like, dig this. Remember I told you about this? It was the system. It was every two streets went to a different elementary. That was a main street that went through our neighborhood. And at one point in time, they split that. They split the high schools. This side, this side of the street went to one high school. This mm. side of the street went to the other high school. And wow. so coming from when I was growing up in the 80s, I don't want to diverge too far from what you asked me, but I have to say no, all this. this is relevant. No, but growing you. up in the 80s, we still had that real community kind of vibe. But between crack being brought into the neighborhood and... I believe them splitting us up, sending us to all these different schools. We didn't have the opportunity to develop the camaraderie that, you know, like, like this fraternal kind of thing that other communities um, 
they had, you know, because they went to school from pre-K all the way to high school to, with the same people. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you grow up with these people, y'all develop these bonds. And so by the time the 90s came, my neighborhood was fragmented. You know, wow. it was really cliquish. Every, every the same deal as the, as the schools, every couple of streets, they kind of just dealt with themselves. And, you know, if somebody went to one of the other streets, it might be a problem, depending, uh -huh. on, depending on what day it is. But it wasn't like that when I was growing up. It wasn't like that when my daddy was growing up. It wasn't until they split us up in these schools and everybody started kind of packing based off of that particular, you know, we started uh -huh. doing it. So it's like that that's honestly that's what pisses me off. I get riled up when I start thinking about that, because now as a grown man, I can look back and see when things started to change. And that was nothing but racism. And when we got to the school, like the high school, I went to a school called Jersey Village my freshman year. This is the school my grand, my daddy graduated from. They, my freshman year, they built another high school called Sight Falls, which was about 15 minutes further, further west. So we, uh, and they zoned us off there. So I went to one high school freshman year and I graduated from the other school. You know, I went sophomore, junior, and senior year there, right? Um, I didn't get the chance to even graduate from the school my daddy graduated from. They took me out of there and put me in another one mm. because every time they build a new school, they zoned us. I was the first graduating class from one of the middle schools I went to because they built a new school and then they shipped us over there. Mm. You know what I mean? And then they wow. built a new high school and they shipped us over there. I was the first graduating class in my high school because of that same reason. And then we would get there. And, and sometimes sometimes it wasn't just the, a black, a racial thing. It was a... Uh, a social thing because a socioeconomic thing, because there were black people around that time when I got to high school that grew up in the suburbs because their parents, yeah. you know, they came from the hood, made a little money and then moved out to the suburbs. And then their kids was raised up in the suburbs. Right. And so when we got to this particular high school, which I made a lot of good friends there, so it wasn't all bad at all. I really, right. you know, I became who I am based off of that experience. And so I'm not, I'm not going to crap on it like that, but it was still, the situation that we got dumped into a building where these people didn't want us there. They forced us on them and they forced them on us. And so, mm. of course, there's going to be friction. Yeah. But the kids from the black kids from the suburbs, they didn't get treated the same way. I noticed the way that, you know, the, uh, the short leash that that the kids from the hood had versus the black kids from mm. the suburbs had. You know, their leash was a, was a lot longer. So it wasn't even just a black thing. It was a socioeconomic thing to go along mm. with it. So yeah, that really okay. that whole time, man. Just me being in school, it, yeah. it, uh, when I look back on it, a lot of things that happened, especially when I got kicked off the football team, I couldn't play no more. I started my whole the way they treated me all changed. I started getting treated wow. like the rest of the people from the hood. Wow, because I couldn't wow. run touchdowns for them no more. Mm. You know, so you 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 talk about social segregation, yeah, and you talk about classism, yes, and and, and how. And the devaluation too of you as an athlete, and once that was taken out, and yeah. you no longer had anything of value to to be uh, representative of it, it's it, you were treated differently by the system. Totally. Absolutely, I was, I was shocked. I was shocked because it was night and day from the way I was treated. Yeah, also the disintegration of the 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 breaking up of a of a community that sounded like when you were a young boy was an enriched, really enriching wonderful community very and uh yeah well you think about you think about slavery and how slavery uh, the system of slavery 
and and how that it within itself broke up the African family by taking mm-hmm. them in and mm-hmm. or, or taking in, in in the separation. So so you we talk about micro and macro levels of segregation on the macro level. It really separated the individual from their families. What you're what you're describing here, Shah, is how on the me, they call it the meso level, the community level. Even in the community level, they, uh, the system didn't want to have a sense of cohesiveness. So it's to break up the family, and now we're going to break up the community so there won't be any unification because you, we know that you know people are, people are stronger when they unify. Absolutely. Uh, I know there's a scripture in the Bible, and I don't want to be too spiritual about this conversation, but I think it's relevant here. It says, um, um, a house divided shall not stand. And the first thing you want to do is say, if, 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 a, if a robber breaks into the house, subdue the man and everything else will fall. So the moment you the moment you do that, um, we have problems as whether it's the family or the community. So I, I thank you for sharing that story, because uh, yeah. it's really you're in the South and Louisiana is the South. And so we know some of these practices around uh, systemic racism was birthed out of the system of uh, slavery. Yeah. So and this and Kiva, this was in Texas, though. So okay, when Texas got you, okay, that's still else. south. Yeah, that's yeah, south. yeah that, it's it's worse. Texas is the south, but Texas is Texas. That's okay, got you. Cats need to understand. Texas was its own country. Yeah. Oh wow. That's you, a, you see what I'm saying? Texas was a country. It wasn't just some land that was annexed. It was actually a republic that was annexed. You know, so yeah. we had it was a government. We still have a constitution right here in Austin. Yeah, there was like five different versions of Texas. Yeah, my uh, my kids screaming out there. I hope it's not too loud. Nah, we that's, that's why okay. we got good editing. Well, that's all right. Mine is probably <laughs> going to do the same thing too. They they're part of the part of the plan. That's all good. Cool. Uh, Go but ahead, yeah, John. man, like Texas is a whole different kind of vibe, man. Um, and like I said, there's there's some things I really love about being from Texas, and there's some things that I I got to kind of like, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know. So uh, yeah, bro, it was, uh, and this, this is something else I wanna, I'm gonna say this several times throughout this, this uh, process. This was in the nineties. Yeah, know? not too far, yeah. You know, it, like people keep on, oh, that was so long ago. Not no, so long ago, no. This was in the nineties. Well, now one of the other themes, that was great. I wanna, but I wanna segue to music, you know. Okay. Uh, you don't mind talking about music. Oh, not, uh, no, not at all. That's how we met. So, yeah. So, met so, so, one of the things that impressed me about uh, your interview with Hogue and your music is how multifaceted it is and how it's been influenced by, and you, you mentioned all those different things when you were a kid that you were exposed to, and, and you can see it blended into your music. So, with that kind of segue, could you sort of talk to us a little bit about how you got to where you are today as a singer songwriter and the kind of music that you do say a little bit about your new album. Tell us what the name of it is. And, and I want to hear about Goldie pipes, how that name came about. So talk to us a little bit about how you developed as a singer songwriter, segue that into your, uh, your current music. Okay. Well, um, we'll be here all night if I tell the whole story. Because my it started when I was I know it could nine, take a long time. <laughs> when it was about nine, I was about nine years old when uh this whole thing started for me. Um, but of course I started singing in the church. Um we had a Brady Macedonia Baptist Church, we had a, a really good youth choir, a lot of good singers. Uh, so I just grew up in that environment, learning from my old some a few of my older cousins 
And uh, so around the time I was nine, nine years old, uh, three of, no, it was four of them at first, four of my older cousins, uh, three, two of them were brothers, two of them were like uncle, nephew, but they were all cousins as well. Um, and they started a singing group. Um, the original manager was uh, my father's first cousin. He had to break off because his job was taking up too much of his time. So my father took over the management of the, of the group. It was a gospel group. Um, saying like acapella, you know, harmony driven type uh, gospel music. And so uh, I would I would ride with them. You know, my, my father picked me up and we'll go when they have rehearsals. And I sat in on all the rehearsals. So, of course, I learned all the songs just sitting around. And uh, so I would sing from the side. You know, I would just be on the sideline singing. So I learned all the parts and I would mm-hmm. sing all the parts from the side. And um, so I guess uh, after about a year of that, around our age 10, they decided they wanted to add a member. And so they added another one of our cousins. And um, probably two, three months later, they called and asked me to, to join. Um, and that's when I, see, I was 10. So I had this really high squeaky voice, but I could sing the, you know, the, the high tenor one notes, the soprano notes, so to say, if I was a girl. Um, so I joined in and uh, we would just basically go all around Houston, sing at all these churches over the weekend, sometimes two, two you know, a night. So I, I started gaining experience performing in front of people when I was like 10 years old from that time. And we would go all over Houston and we started going over Texas and eventually went into Louisiana. So it was a lot. It was a great experience. And that lasted until I was probably about 17. Because um, we would, you know, of course, we forayed into R&B because the boys to men's and Joe season of the nineties started coming along. So that, you know, that started influencing us. And so we started doing some R and B, but we still sung at churches as well at that time. So just being around them as good as they were, I learned a lot. My ear got really good. Um, and I was able to, um, basically, like I said, I could hear all the parts cause I would just sit to the side. So we would get to a point to where I didn't lead a lot of songs, but say if somebody had to lead a song, I would jump to their harmony note. And so you can probably talk to Hogue about this, like the way that I record, I record really unstructured because I grew up being able to jump. I was singing one note. Next thing you know, I'll jump up and then come back down because that's the way I grew up singing live. So um, that was really my, my intro to it. It was really, like I said, it was mostly church based, mostly gospel based. And then we went into R&B around that time. I joined a rap group um, 1991. So. That's when I got into the studio. So I started becoming a recording artist in 1991. I was 14. Um, years and years of that, uh, I started getting influenced by like East Coast hip hop. I started really liking, uh, I always loved the Rakims in, in that era, but that's around the time of Tribe Called Quest, uh, who I really love. Uh, then, uh, you know, Nas, uh, you know, that whole era, that 90s hip hop really started I like what they were talking about. I was really starting to get into my blackness, you know, and so they were talking a lot of, you know, about Africa and, and, and political things um, that, that we need to be aware of, you know, the Malcolm X factor, that type of thing. So mm-hmm. it all blended together. So I was rapping and singing way back then, even before it became like right now, they'll say, uh, you know, if you're not rapping and singing, you're not doing nothing. Back then they would tell me, are you going to rap or are you going to sing? Like they were trying to like even record labels, they were trying to split it up. They didn't want it to, to mesh it. Um, and so I got, you know, I got fussed a lot for lack of a better word. Hey man, you need to choose, <laughs> you know. But uh, so I was doing both at the same time. It, it was a good experience because I got a lot of I just got a lot of stage experience back then because of being in those two groups. 
I was performing with both. I was recording with both. So um, just being around them, like I said, guys that were already doing it, that were better than me at it. Um, the only thing I had that I could say over them, I just had this passion for it. Uh, they would have to calm me down. Like I would want to run to the front of the stage and just start just going all out. Yeah. Calm down, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, that was the one thing. But I learned a lot from those guys, from my older cousins, from my you know my my rap group guys too. And it just uh, they opened my mind to different artists as well, like you know that I never heard of. So of course, hearing these different these different sounds and, and these different presentations opened my mind up to new possibilities of what music could be and where we could take it. So I just kept going, man. Once I once I, the groups kind of dissolved. I went into the solo thing and it, it took me a while to really find my vibe. I got really into the hip hop soul thing um, until I moved to Austin. And I was going by David Shaw at the time. Um, and that's when I met you, John. I don't know if John, if you remember, I actually uh, stayed at your house for a couple of days. I do. I was about, back, back, I figured out it was about 11 years ago. Yep. Yeah, wow. yeah. 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 I had came up there and did a, did a, some, uh, I think they did a, they did a show in Jersey. And uh, mm-hmm. I flew up there and with full service. And uh, yeah, I stayed at your house, man. It was like so cool. Like, you know, just, <laughs> hey, yeah, Dave, go in there and get you something to eat. I just, you know, just, you know what I mean? So yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm I, never going to forget that, yeah. actually. So yeah, that's what it was. Oh, no, like, I didn't forget you. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if you remembered that. Yeah, no. Um, well, now, so so tell us a little bit about your album, the name of it. Why is it named... The Chocolate Quarters. And okay, so my, yeah, my album is called The Chocolate Quarters. Uh, it's, and I go by Goldie Pipes now, of course. Um, you yeah. did ask me where it came from. Basically, yeah, where does that come from, too? Yeah, when I came to Austin, uh, I was letting, uh, I was working with this young guy named Billy. Uh, and and uh, he's a guitarist. And he was, uh, I said, yeah, I do music. He said, oh, I do, too. And so we just, we talked. Anyway, he said, he heard my voice. He said, man, you should sing the blues. Austin is a big blues town. You know, you can make some noise out here if you sing the blues. And I'm like, well, I grew up listening to it. I never sang it, but I, you know. And so we started kind of messing around with it. And next thing you know, we started a band. Um, the band was going pretty good for about a year and a half. So the name Goldie Pipes came from just us being on stage. I was the front man. And I would just give everybody nicknames in the band and introduce them to the crowd as a joke. You know, kind of just to keep the crowd interacted. Um, and so I don't know why, but I called myself Goldie Pipes as a joke. Um you know, and, uh, you know, it went over well. I got off the stage and people wouldn't say, hey, Shah. I said, hey, my, my name is Shah Goldie Pipes Alleyne, blah, blah, blah. I get off the stage and they just started calling me Goldie Pipes. They didn't refer to me as Shah anymore. It was like, hey, Goldie, hey, Goldie Pipes. Hey, come, come, come take a shot with me. And so it kind of just stuck, you know. So when the band broke up, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to stay in the blues lane. So um, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to go with the Goldie Pipes thing. It, it was working. People liked it. It's a good thing that I can brand. It was like I said, it started off as a joke, but people ran with it. So now that leads me. The band broke up. I said, I'm going to do this Goldie Pipes thing. I want to do this album. And I, I definitely wanted to stay blues, bluesy soul. I definitely wanted to um, keep the live band aspect, um, especially being in Austin. So um, I just kind of started thinking about well, what 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 does my sound mean like what 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 do i want to present as goldie pipes and so the name of chocolate quarters came from when i was a kid that was a um a mini uh mini series on one of those cbs or abc one of them but it was about elvis presley's life it was a biopic mm. and it was a mini series 
And Elvis grew up in Memphis. So, of course, you know, it's very segregated. And uh, he would get up, you know, in, uh, in the middle of the night and run down to the area where all the black people hung out, where all the juke joints were. And, uh, you know, so he can hear them play the blues, you know, and um, my son's knocking on the door. So he would run down there to hear them play the blues. And he got in trouble a lot. And so when his mother, well, this is what it was in the movie, but when his mother caught him coming back, she's like, where were you at, Elvis? And he was like, I went down to the chocolate quarters. That's the area of the time where the black folks hung out. They called mm. it the chocolate quarters. And so mm. my what I wanted to present on this project was just the total um, encompassing of black music. You know what I mean? I wanted to present the roots of, you know, that soul, blues, you know, the gospel, the being in the fields. That's where that song Picking This Cotton came from, you know, uh, just, you know, just that whole, the, the, the entire roots of it, you know, and uh, that's what it was. It was just about really presenting black music to the people. And that's the first thing that popped in my head was Elvis running down there to hear the black musicians play because it felt yeah. so good to me. Wow. And you call, you call, what did you call the triplets? The, the uh, gospel soul and um, blues, blues all sort of combined together. And that, that, that's flows through the album. Yeah. I call them the triplets. I call them like three sisters. Um, because again, when I started singing the blues and I was listening to the chords, I was like, Hey, I grew up singing like that in church. That's just quartet style gospel mm -hmm. with, you know, a little change here and there, but, um, it was easy for me to, uh, you know, to go into blues music from growing up singing in the church, um, especially in the male chorus where we did more quartet kind of styles. So, uh, yeah, I call them triplets because really it was the same musicians. The people, they, they, they played in church, um, you know, Sunday morning, but the night before they were in the juke joints playing blues. Or, uh, and, and soul music really was just gospel music that had secular lyrics. Like Ray Charles, those were gospel songs. Sam Cooke, those were gospel songs. James yeah. Brown and Famous Flames, Try Me is a gospel song, but mm. they made it about love or, you know, sex or women. Mm. They changed up the lyrics, but it was the exact same sound. So it was the same yeah. musicians, the exact same sound, same feel, just, just in different places. So I call them, they're, they're, the, they're the triplets, and their mother is the fields. The slave wow. fields, the, the uh, you know, the uh, sharecropping fields, well, they can't. That's their mother, but they, I call them the triplets. Yeah, I want to. I want to stay there for a second. Where you said uh, that's their mother, the slave fields, because I think uh, it's important for just to hear your perspective on how has has slavery. We talked a little bit about systemic racism. How has how has slavery developed and systemic racism developed um, black music in this country, uh, and, and more specifically, like the roots. You mentioned the roots and the origin. You know, they say music uh, soothes the soul, right? And and I know uh, slavery, there was a lot of message in the music. And that's why a lot of the songs that they would sing was, it was a communication mechanism between the slaves. So share a little bit about how you incorporated that into your, what you, what you, what you do as an artist and what lessons would you say um, there is for white people when they hear black music? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, it started, that started in Africa. Um, we didn't create it in the fields. We brought it from Africa because we would communicate with the drum. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if they wanted to pass messages, it was like that Morse code. 
kind of vibe with the military, we communicated with the drums. So music has always passed messages um, in black music. You know, black music really is just an expression of black spirituality. That's all it's ever been. All the songs that were written back in, 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 in Africa from ancient times on were um, expressions of, uh, of thanks, gratitude uh, to, you know, to God, to, to, to the, the, the spirits of nature, to the ancestors. Uh, so we've always communicated um, that type of passion between us and, uh, you know, the other, the other world, the spiritual world or what have you, um, mm -hmm. through music. That's something we've, we've always done. Uh, it, it got watered down, of course, when, when the uh, recording industry started to make money, you know what I mean? Because that became the actual target of it was the money aspect, you know, getting rich as opposed to conveying this message, you know, these feelings. So slavery, first of all, it unified us, you know what I mean? Because we all had one oppressor. Um, and so definitely we had to, to pass these messages of encouragement. Um, some of those songs, like the picking this cotton in a loop, it was kind of, you know, a lot of the songs we made were jokes because, you know, like I said, you got to laugh to keep from crying. Um, yeah. so it was, a, it was a lot of that going on. Um, and so I still like to do that in my songs too. Uh, you know, uh, it was, it was a, it, early blues songs. That was, that was a lot of that, you know, it was a lot of that. Uh, cause again, it was just, Hey man. This, this is what life is, but, you know, we can't just lay down and die. You know, we got to make the best of it until we make our way out of it. So slavery, you know, slavery, it, that mentality still, you know, permeates through society. Uh, you know, people still look at me funny because I have the nerve to speak up against, uh, you know, nonsense, even at the job. You know, they still give you that mad, angry black guy thing. You know, like uh, they don't say those words as much, but you can tell, like, the nerve of him. Like, no, I'm not just, you know, it's so it's still, hey, know your place. It's still, it's still there. They just can't say it because of HR and, and, and the PC culture. But mm -hmm. you can sit, you can tell it's still like, oh, he, what's wrong with him? Why? It's like, no, I yeah. just, I, I'm not letting you spit on me. So I'm wrong for saying, hey, don't spit on me. Uh, so yeah, it, it's still, it's still involved. As far as my music goes, it's just a part of my personality. And I just want to be as authentic as possible. Um, uh, I, I, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not gonna. I, I want to sell albums. I want to make yeah, money. Yeah. I want to yeah. tour the world. I want to give my children generational wealth. Um, yeah. Just like everybody else, I'm not gonna act like. Well, it's not about money for me. It's a lot of it is about money. But when I'm creating the music, I'm not thinking about it. I'm thinking yeah. about like the, the chocolate quarters. A lot of that had to do with. I also want to make people feel good. That's a message as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Just uplifting the spirit by just saying, "Hey." Shake your booty. Just go dance. Let's right. have a good time tonight. We're not thinking about none of the other stuff right now. We'll deal with that later. Right now, we just want a boogie. Um, and so, like, Boogie Woogie, that was early, pre-rock and roll, when black people did it, they didn't call it rock and roll, they called it Boogie Woogie. When white right. people started playing Boogie Woogie, they started calling it rock and roll. <laughs> it was just Boogie Woogie. It was the right. same stuff. So, right. yeah, I, I like that. I, I love the feeling of Boogie Woogie. And that's something else I love about funk as well, because it just makes you feel good. good you yeah. can take the tension out and dance and just have a good time. So yeah. that that's that's the at this point in my life, I before I did a lot of message, I did a lot of preaching in my music, especially when yeah. I was rapping. I was real preaching. I was real going into my going into books and studying and then passing information and knowledge. Uh, I'm like, if you want that for me, go listen to my old stuff. 
Because right. it's there. Okay. But right now, I just want people to feel good. Feel good music. So, yes. so, um, so you mentioned um, uh, picking cotton, and I like we're going to play that in a minute uh, as a sort of an interlude here. But do you want to introduce it for us? We'll say that again. What's you want to introduce uh, picking cotton for yeah, us? Yeah, sure. We'll play that um, so, as an interlude here. Yeah, picking this cotton was an interlude, and I wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to do that record. I figured it might ruffle some feathers, maybe, but. I wanted to do that record because I want people to understand, especially non-black people, um, that that's getting hardcore to blues and, and want to tell us what it is and what it ain't and all that. But people choose, pick and choose what they want to uh, express. And when it comes to the blues, the blues was rooted in oppression. I just wanted to let people know that this is where this music that you say you love, it comes from this mm -hmm. condition these conditions um created the environment that birthed all of this music the blues gospel soul all of that that turned into rock and roll that turned into metal that turned into funk hip-hop it was it all came from this condition that we wanted to express ourselves as well as just uplift ourselves and i want y'all i want people to know that hey it's not all rosy you can't don't just pick and choose. If you love this music, if it, if it makes you feel a certain way and all of that, all the way down to Snoop Dogg raised the whole generation. I know so many white people right now that walk around that wouldn't be who they are if they didn't listen to Snoop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and Snoop okay. was raised off of that, off the stuff I'm talking about. So what I'm saying is this: this stuff comes from some hardcore-ish. And, yeah. and and what you're doing right now, this podcast, is is exactly what that song was meant to do to address the conditions that created that environment and the people that suffered from it and the people that benefited from it. We got all of that because one people, one, a group of people were being subjugated, were being oppressed in real time, not in the book, not in the Bible, not in the history yeah. books. This was happening right here, <laughs> you know, right here in the United States of America. And it's, it's real. And we have to address these things. Don't just say you love the music. Love the people too that that yeah. created that music. Yeah, yeah, got it. So that's a great intro. We're gonna we're gonna play that right now. Mm, I said, show enough hot picking this cotton today. Said, show enough hot picking this cotton today. Yeah, ain't no clouds in the sky is cooking. It's My baby cooking. smell bad, but she's still good. Said it's show enough hot picking this cotton today. Well, I said the show ain't fun picking this cotton today. I said show ain't fun picking this cotton today. Yeah, ain't no clouds in the sky is cooking. Better start picking four masses, start whipping. Said show ain't fun picking this cotton today. Yummy. Come help me, come help me, ancestors. Come help me, please come help me. Oh, should come help me, come help me. I need you right now, y'all. Yeah. 
Okay, so that was that was really. I love listening to every time I hear it. I love listening to that. Um, so, how has um, racism, if at all, impacted um, black musicians in our country? From your in, maybe in your own situation, or what you've what you've have observed about other black artists? Haven't really affected me much um, because I haven't. I've been independent, you know. Um, I haven't really, I mean, this, let's just be real. Black people have been entertaining white people since we've been here. That's, you know, that's yeah. really, we either, we entertain you playing football, running, uh, going, winning gold medals, uh, you know, being on stage, rocking the crowd. Um, the biggest white artists from the Stones to the, uh, the Doors and all them were influenced by these black artists. And they, the Rolling Stones got their name from a Muddy Waters song. So, um, of course, they, they dealt with a lot of it. So really what I know is from them. But when, once you get into the machine, I've never actually made it past the getting the record deal line. I got, I got right to the door and it just never happened for me. And maybe that's for the good. I don't know. But as an independent artist, I hadn't had a lot of it. You know, certain, certain venues didn't really want your kind of music mm -hmm. in there. But... You know, we don't want that kind of music. But then you're looking there, and there's actually some white dudes in there rapping or doing, you know, some. Yeah, yeah, but, okay, I can so see why that. Don't want my kind of music. So you yeah. know that kind of stuff, but nothing, nothing like you know our predecessors. You know, have went through or people that actually made it really into the machine. I'm sure they dealt with a lot of that too. But I haven't, I haven't really got slapped with a lot of it. But um, you know, a lot of the older artists, you can just see a lot of them got messed out of their publishing. Um, they would write these records. Even speaking of Elvis, uh, you know, that was a big, nothing but a hound dog was a big Mama Thornton song, but he got rich off of it. You know what I mean? They would take these black songs, these these artists, these black artists would record the record, the record label would give it to one of their right, white artists and let the white artists blow it up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that happened a lot. That happened a lot. Um, and the black artists would die broke. Go figure. The, and the white artist becomes a legend. So off this same song that this black person wrote. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it's been happening for decades, but it hadn't happened to me. Um, so, but if it, happened, want, if it happened to them, it happened to me. I wanted to do a quick follow-up to that, because do you feel like you, your, your experience, you not experience like overt racism is because you are independent and you did not become part of quote unquote the machine? Because, you know, just thinking about record companies, right? And, you know, I think a lot of black artists like Jay-Z, Sean Puffy Combs, uh, Dr. Dre, all those guys started their own record label because they were getting, you know, that was, a, if you watch the movie NWA, that was the whole reason why Dr. Dre and them started their own record label and wanted to keep all of the, all of the, uh, uh, I guess, the economic benefits of, of music, of the black music and the black experience in their pockets and not kind of giving up but so do you think because you haven't you you stayed independent do you feel like if you, if you would have kind of got into the machine of using you know, that you you would have that would have been a different experience for you absolutely mm -hmm. um i mean i would have got the benefits of uh being a star i guess maybe um i think i would i think i would have blew up but you still would have had to deal with the, the ugly side of it and um a lot of those people are really young when they get signed mm -hmm. um and so that's how they end up getting. I mean, a lot of the record labels actually introduced them to the drugs. You know what I mean? Like, 
because they're getting their money back. They're buying the drugs from them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's it's an ugly side to the business. A lot of it's racial, um, racially driven. And, of course, if you look at the top of all these major record labels, it's, it's an old old white man, you know, whether it's a white Englishman or a white Jewish man. It's usually like an old white man at the top that's, uh, you one know, the, actually one of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that's really... The, the, that's the that's the fat cat. That's the pockets that are getting fat. When you know the artists are, they they make pennies on the dollar really for what they're creating when they get in those situations. Um, I think Prince was probably the first one to really reveal uh, when he stepped out and, and started doing it independently. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, I avoided a lot of those uh, tribulations because I did. I but I didn't stay away from it on purpose. You know, I wanted to get into the machine because I wanted the fame and the money. But, but um, I just I hadn't had my shot to get in there. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff I avoided because I didn't cross the line, you know. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned a few things, but wow. uh, I'm really curious about um, common misunderstandings that uh, white people may have about black musicians and black music. You, you mentioned, for example, that people don't realize that a lot of white music was really derived from black music. Yeah. So, so that's an example. Uh, are there other examples that you could give uh, drums mm. and, you know, do people, do white people understand how drums have impacted uh, black music? The origin no, of drums. From no, well, no, because they're not taught. They're not taught. To, that that actually goes into African history and African spirituality. That's the point. Yeah. And they're not taught that. And I'm. And the reason I know they're not taught that is because I'm black and I wasn't taught that. They don't. They, they don't teach us that in schools. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Everything that I've learned about African history, uh, I learned on my own. You know, or the elders gave me. You know. You know, some nuggets, and then I went and did my research. Yeah. So that's all. That's all a part of. After, this is the okay. You, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you said that. There's a big misconception about African spirituality, and um, that's that's what I've been on for oh. you know the better part of a decade. Um, you know, I grew up in the church, and I went on my own spiritual journey about age 21, and it kind of led me into basically just going back and studying um, the spirituality of my ancestors prior to being introduced to Christianity and Islam, uh, especially before we got on slave ships and came over here, but. Um, the music, that was no separation between, like when they said, well, we're going to do music and then you have God. That was no separation. It was all one because in African thought, nothing exists outside of God. God is not an entity sitting somewhere looking at you. God is everything. And so the music is a part of God. You're expressing to God. You're expressing God itself. You are an expression of God. So again, like, like Kiva said, I don't want to go too deep into it, but a misconception is that um, a lot of, you know, this stuff was heathenistic or paganistic or nah. It was just about expressing the gratitude of nature and the music. The drum was a communication. It was the original instrument. And um, it, it it takes you into a spiritual place, uh, depending on the, the rhythm of the drum. Same deal now. You can be at a concert and, you know, different drum feels give you different feelings. They If they're really, you might be ready to fight, you know. Same deal back in the day. The drum, that was a certain drum for when it was time to go to war. You know what I mean? That was a, that was a certain drum like, you know, hey, it's time to wake up. Go hunting. You know, like Reveille. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, 
it's that's based off of that same concept. And so, yeah, yeah, that's 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 a major misconception that the drum definitely influences the spirit uh, when it comes to black music. It's the root of black music. If real quick, if y'all have y'all ever seen uh, the biopic of James Brown uh, that just that came out not too long ago, Get On Up. I saw the movie. Yeah, yeah very good yeah, movie. Saw the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chadwick Boseman played James Rest Brown. Rest in peace, yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. Chadwick. Um, well, that was a scene when he was talking. This is when, when the funk was created. That was a scene when he was in the room with his musicians and he was asking them, uh, hey, uh, play this rhythm. And and, and uh, the, the character, I think it was Macy, but played by Craig Robinson, he was like, well, Mr. Brown, that's not going to match musically. You know, he's going to be on one time and I'm going to be on another. It's, it doesn't match. And he said, uh, Mr. Parker, what's that you playing? He's like, it's a saxophone. He said, no, that's a drum. He said, Mr. Such and such, what's that you got your hands on? It's a guitar. Uh-uh, that's a drum. You know, he mm. was telling each one of them, no, those instruments are drums. Because honestly, that is the root of each one of the instruments. It's the rhythm of it. It's the, you mm. know. And so it, even James Brown in, in that era, without doing any studying of African history, has still understood that the drum is the pulse of it all. You know what I mean? It's the rhythm section. That's what made James Brown so powerful. It was his rhythm section. It was the drum mm -hmm. and the bass, the rhythm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it comes from the drum. It's definitely, it's powerful. It's the, it's yeah. the instrument of the priests. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I can tell you, I, re I, I can recall as a DJ, they always um, wanted that bottom, what they call that bottom. The bottom, yeah. Yeah, without the, it's interesting, without the bottom, it's, it doesn't move us. It's something that, like you said, it's something about it's the drum does something to our soul, something to our spirit. And when that bottom is taken out of a song or, or, or out of the uh, equalization, the whole the whole mood just you could do it for for a little bit. If you want to just highlight a song, because I would drop it and hot, you know, drop the the bass so that the the uh, the mids and the highs would just play. But you can't leave it out too long. You have to right. drop it and bring it back in and when bring, you it, bring back. it back in. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's, you're right. There's a disconnection, a, a, this explosion, this musical yeah. or spiritual explosion that you would see, uh, you know, whether it's an artist or, you know, or from a DJ standpoint. So I can relate to that when you say it's a spiritual connection between Absolutely. black people and the drums. So thank you for sharing that. Well, Absolutely. I, I uh, you know, we could continue for another hour. Sure. Yeah. This has been really it's great. Amazing. Some really rich stuff. And there's a lot more. Uh, that we haven't been able to cover, uh, but before we uh, and we're getting we're getting short on time. Before we sign off, could you tell us a little bit more about the album? And um, uh, as you do that, kind of segue into we're going to play uh, on the uh, outro here. Um, I'm not sure it's my favorite. It may be my favorite. Butter grits. We're gonna play that yeah. on outro. So, talk us a little bit about the album. Uh, what's your? What you, you gave us a great synopsis of the theme of the album, but where you hope it's going to take uh, and um, take you, and um, and then why don't you? Um, we'll say goodnight on your intro to Buttered Grits. But uh, but Kiba, do you want to say anything finally before we sign off? Yeah, no, I just want to thank everybody out there for listening into uh, you know our podcast. You know the race to social justice. I want to thank uh, Shah Goldie Pipes for being with us this evening. Uh, great conversation. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I learned a lot about Me musical too. history and how it how it has impacted 
not just, uh, you know, communities of color, but, you know, just everybody around the world and, and the connection between the spirituality piece and the drum was real powerful for me. Um, and so thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next time at another uh, courageous conversation here at the Race to uh, Social Justice. Thank you. Okay, that's your cue, Shah. Tell us um, about the album and tee up uh, Butter Grits for us. Yeah, uh, real quick before I do that, I, again, I want to thank y'all for bringing me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, John, it's great seeing you again. I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, and it's funny, I'm looking at your face on the screen. I just, I see an old version of Hope. I'm just kind of <laughs> laughing at myself. Hope yeah. looks a lot like you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say something before I got out of here, and I'm going to be real short with it so we can get to the butter grits. It's something I kind of wanted to bring up early, but I lost my train of thought. Okay. I appreciate y'all doing this because um, I believe honest dialogue is definitely the first stage of making the changes that need to be made. Once people understand each other's viewpoints, then you can start actually moving in unison and you can go to the lawmakers together and say, hey, this ain't right, this needs to be changed. You know, because just black people out there with picket signs, we've been doing that since the 50s. That still mm -hmm. haven't changed what's going on. So I appreciate, I appreciate this. I appreciate uh, what y'all bring to the table. Um, and I, I'm saying that to say this too. The name of the podcast is The Race to Social Justice. Um, the term social justice, I've been hearing it a lot after George Floyd uh, was murdered. Um, the term social justice is kind of a misnomer, uh, so to say. And the reason I say that is because people, and, and I try not to just put lump white people, I don't want to just say white people do, because everybody's not like that. I'm the first person to say all white people ain't in this boat. But um, let's say the, the, the powers that be, let, let, me, let me put it that way. And the people that don't want to accept that things need to change because they're not in power, but they are benefiting from these things. Uh, and they feel like if things change, it's gonna affect what they have. So social, the term social justice is kind of this new buzzword thing that's been going around. Um, but what it does for me it makes it seem like it's a different phase or it's something new that's going on in America. You know, like this thing that's going on with police brutality is, uh, it's, just, it's this new thing. It's not new. It's, uh, it's a continuation of one long issue, which started when we got brought from Africa to now. Nothing has stopped. This is a continuation from slavery to today. You know, the difference is camera phones and the internet and all of that, yeah. So it's a new era that's being presented that people can see. But right. the police brutality is the reason that the Black Panthers were started in the first place. Yeah. It was not a militant organization of we're going to go kill white people. It had nothing to do with that. It was right. a group of college students, college students Educated. that decided that they were going to police the police that was coming into their neighborhoods, busting their heads open. This has been right. going on even before that. They just decided to do something about it in the 60s. So. I want people, y'all, hey, I'm, I'm not telling y'all, hey, you need to change name. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the people, the people that listen to this, I want you to understand that this is not a new occurrence. This is a continuation of oppression. That's the issue. It's a continuation of the oppression of Black people and just poor people, period. From the time we got here till now, it has not stopped from slavery to uh, uh, the Reconstruction to uh, Jim Crow to uh, the crack epidemic, to right mm -hmm. now, 
It has not stopped. Social justice is not a new era. Civil rights is not a different thing. It's that's all a part of the same problem that needs to be addressed. And I applaud you guys for addressing it. Mm. I applaud it because now this is being recorded and put out there. So it can't go. You, you know, what I mean? you can't avoid it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Somebody's yeah. going to see this and somebody's going to start having to have these conversations with their children and their co-workers and their friends and themselves. Sure. Sure. You know, so. I appreciate it, man. I'm, 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 we can talk about it off air too, if y'all want to. I don't yeah, want to keep this going, okay. but I just want to <laughs> say I appreciate what y'all are doing, and I want people to know that. Don't act like this is new. This is not a new yeah. thing, you know. Uh, so, really, the album again is a, a total encompassing of, of black music. It's, it's, it's what I wanted to express, um, kind of like Robert Glasper did Black Radio. Uh, if y'all haven't heard that album, it's a great album. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to really push the spirit of black music um, and how it influenced me as a person. I'm really an old soul. Uh, you know, I, I've I've been an old man since I was a little kid. <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, it was it was a it was a fun experience doing it because I actually produced the whole album myself. Um, nice. You could hear um, Hope actually did a couple of clips. So where you can kind of hear me sitting around beatboxing with the band, like, cause I hear this group, like Butter Grits. Okay, perfect segue, John. Um, Butter Grits, first of all, the concept was a joke. A lot of my stuff start off as jokes. It starts off as a joke and just becomes something. My wife, I love grits. I love grits and I love butter in my grits. And my wife knows this. Um, and sometimes I'm like, hey, put some more grits in there, you know? So one day she made me some grits for breakfast and she brought me the bowl and she made a little joke and said, um, I hope your uh, what she said, I hope your your grits are yellow enough, and that's one of the lyrics I put in the song. Yeah, yeah. Because my grits wasn't yellow enough, baby. She bought. She's like, I hope your grits are yellow enough. It means is it enough butter for you? You know, it's one of those things. <laughs> and so uh, it became a song, man. It was just like I was just laughing one day. I had this groove in my head that I didn't do nothing with for about a year, and um, that came up, and I was like, I was thinking about what can I write to this groove. I had this groove in my head. And I was just singing it to my phone. And um, so when I started recording the album, I'm like, I want to do something with this groove. And then that, that joke popped up in my head and I started laughing about it. And I meshed it together and I wrote the song Buddy Grits. Um, and I went to Hope and I was like, hey man, I got this record, man. It's really funky. I, and I've been knowing Hogan Bonesaw for 15 years, mm. uh, easy. And we've never done songs together. Like we performed together, but we've never recorded a record together. Mm -hmm. And so I just came to Hogue and I kind of gave him this groove. He's like, yeah, I want to play it. And so I be I gave him the beat. He put up his phone. I beatboxed it. <laughs> you know, and I saw him the groove. He recorded it. He I said, hey, man, ask Bonesaw, could he play a guitar? You know, you know, play the guitar on it. And uh, so he came back and said, hey, man, this is what I got so far. And yeah, man, he, he Hogue laid the drums, put some little shakers in there. <laughs> Bonesaw came in there and, and, and laid the riff. And then we got my friend Jimmy Blazer to lay the bass line underneath it. And uh, just it's just it's a James Brown kind of vibe. It's like we don't need to make a lot of changes. Let's give them a good groove and just let them shake it to it. And like I said, the song was a joke. So there's jokes in there to keep it funny, to keep it lighthearted. So, yeah, just get in there and dance and have a good time, laugh and So, yeah, that's that's what Butter Grits came from. It's really a feel good. Rest. It's a feel good record. Nice. Well, I can tell you, I love grits too. And I, you know, when I listen to the song 
on SoundCloud, I, I was I was I was really tempted to get a spoon and try to to get a, at least a spoonful of the grits that's in that, yeah, in that album cover and that <laughs> album cover that's on, on that's on SoundCloud. So I don't yeah. know if those that's your, those are your wife's actual grits, but they look delicious and and, I, <laughs> and the song is banging too. So hey, it. let's just let's jump into butter grits, everybody, as we sign yeah, off okay. here. The race. Thanks, Shaw. Great talking to you. Cause you know I love my grits That's a country dish Don't give a damn if you're feeling it I'ma put some eggs in that shit Oh, I need 